This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. The legends are true! But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we are going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. All right, Brad, let's just get right into it today. We're going to have a full Ant-Man 3 conversation here. So let's talk about some general thoughts. I guess this has been a a fairly divisive movie uh, in terms of critical reactions and things like that. Actually, I guess it's probably more fair to say that critics, broadly speaking, didn't like the movie very much. Where did you come down on it? What did you think about Ant-Man 3? Yeah, people are being way too grumpy about this movie. I I had a lot of fun with Ant-Man the Wasp Quantumania. It's it's not perfect, and I definitely uh, understand... To a point, the criticisms about the movie not being able to uh, to stand alone and maybe stepping away from what made the previous Ant-Man franchise so great, being uh, smaller movies that don't necessarily have a world-ending scale and uh, give us a break from kind of like the Avengers-level threats that we usually see. But, but I liked seeing a character like Ant-Man thrust into this situation, and I just I liked the overall approach of really digging into the weird side of Marvel Comics. I think this was a movie that actually made good on giving us a fantastical realm that didn't feel like it, you know, cut corners. Uh, I feel like this is, it's the kind of strange and odd stuff that we should have seen in multiverse of madness. Mm -hmm. And I liked seeing it with the Ant-Man characters. Uh, You know, it helps that Jonathan Majors is awesome as, as Kang, just, just an incredible performance all around. Uh, And yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely uh, one of the people who really enjoyed this movie and I I wish it wasn't getting so much hate. Yeah. I think for me, I definitely didn't hate the movie. I liked it more than Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness and Thor love and thunder. So, um, you know, take that for, for what you will, I guess that's not a super high bar, but um, I appreciated that, that sort of weird element of it. I feel like that's the, the recurring theme that I've, I've seen a lot in the reactions, like a lot of people who maybe didn't even love the movie appreciate the sort of swing for the fences aspect of it. And um, I think the, the problem a lot of people are having is that it was shot in the, with the stagecraft technology and it, you know, there's just like a CG mess around everybody. Um, for me, I definitely like butted up against that because like 
you know, the movie opens in San Francisco, but 90% of the thing is probably in the quantum realm. And once they get to the quantum realm, I, I kind of, um, recoiled a little bit at just the look of it, but I ultimately ended up sort of settling in and just sort of accepting that this is what the movie was going to look like and, and, uh, ended up being okay with that aspect of it. Did, did that bother you at all? Or, or what do you think about like, I guess the, the aesthetics of the movie? No, I, and I, I think the aesthetics are really cool. You know, it, it can be frustrating when you are seeing a lot of digital environments and, and characters like that. But for me, I liked the production design and the uniqueness of the character design. You know, this was one of the things I think that uh, where people were saying it really felt like a Star Wars movie, taking us to a different world, introducing all these uh, strange alien characters and creatures. And I, I really dug that vibe. And I didn't mind leaving San Francisco and, and being somewhere different because the first two Ant-Man movies take place all over San Francisco. I don't I don't need to see the, the hilly cityscapes of San Francisco anymore. I get it. Ant-Man lives in a city. Who fucking mm-hmm. cares? <laughs> Show me the cool, fantastical realm. Show me the, the, the crazy sun that is alive and tries to kill Scott Lang. Show me the wild swirling landscapes that look like they're, they, they come from a, some strange atomic hell. Like I, I like stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess like, I think Peyton Reed made some comment in an interview about how like he felt like he owed the audience an explanation of the quantum realm because it had been seeded in those previous two movies. So I guess in some ways this felt inevitable that it was going to do something like this, but it just is like a big tonal shift for people to have to get used to because you don't have Luis, you don't have like the, you know, the, this is this movie, I guess, is like funny, but it's not a com- like an all out comedy in the way that like Ant-Man and the Wasp, I thought was actually like a very, very funny movie, um, yeah. more so than the sort of like, um, I guess, the the typical Marvel experience, which is all, always obviously peppered with a certain amount of jokes and things like that. This movie felt more like just a normal Marvel movie to me than like a comedy that happens to have superheroes in it, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, if anything, I, I think what I, I, I do like that about it is that. It, it took Ant-Man and sh- maybe maybe people don't like that it's less funny, but it, it kind of, uh, you know, cut, cut it in half in the same way that Thor Ragnarok turned the Thor franchise into more of a comedy franchise than just full on sci-fi fantasy. This one took Ant-Man and made it less of a comedy and leaned harder into the sci-fi stuff, which mm-hmm. I'm, I'm totally fine with. I, I like changing the pace for these characters. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that like Marvel often does that thing where they include scenes or moments in the trailer that aren't in the final movie. And sometimes that's on purpose to throw people off the trail of what's really going on. And then sometimes, well, I don't know, I guess in this case, I, I feel like the the movie that they were selling was actually much more interesting to me than the movie that we actually got. Like the idea of Kang being this villain who lords over time or controls time in some way and tempts Scott Lang, Scott Lang by offering him more time with his daughter that he missed out on because he was stuck in the quantum realm. That That's a really fascinating idea. There's like inherent drama in that setup. Like, does our hero do the selfish thing that, that um, benefits his life personally, or does he make a sacrifice for the greater good? And, and those kinds of decisions are like what make heroes, you know, like the, the, that's what separates them from us. Um, but that ended up not being an element of this movie almost at all. And I was, I was kind of shocked to see that. Did you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I did, I did think that I remembered some line in a trailer or a TV spot talking about where like he presents that idea of like that he can have his time back that he missed. And I was wondering where that was coming into play. And I think, I wonder if this ties into, uh, we had a story that went up over the weekend where there was uh, someone posted a behind the scenes photo, a, a parent of a, a child actor who got to film some scenes with Evangeline Lilly uh, as Hope. And he was playing Hope's son. And she also had another kid, a toddler that she was holding. And I wonder if there was some kind of sequence where 
uh, Kang showed both Hope and Scott, maybe all of them, potential timelines where they had completely different lives and he's and like offered them all. It's like, I can give this all to you. You can have a life where you don't have to fight. You don't have to be an Avenger. You don't have mm-hmm. to do any of this. And I think that would have been really interesting to see. Maybe they cut it for time. Maybe it made things too, too complicated. I don't know, but that's, that's an interesting idea. I will say though, that like, despite what you just said and what I was saying earlier, uh, this movie does not feel to me in the same, it doesn't feel like in the same ballpark as some of the other big budget stuff that we've seen recently, where it kind of feels like, hacked to death or like um that there are clearly missing storylines or you know that it was rushed to the finish line it does not feel that way to me and i i was i was happy for that because i felt like at least this is a um a coherent thing that doesn't leave you walking out of the theater going like man i really feel like they missed 10 minutes somewhere in the middle trying to explain x y or z or whatever it didn't it didn't feel like that to me so again i, I that's like damning with faint praise certainly but um but i just, i thought it was worth noting because i feel like a lot of the recent marvel stuff has felt that way this this didn't to me so yeah i actually uh, i talked about that on uh, an upcoming episode of my podcast go fix yourself because we all saw a man the wasp quantumania and i i really liked that it didn't feel like they had a script and they kept certain moments of it and then they shot new scenes in post-production and then pieced it together and they were like, hey, here's a movie. This felt like they really executed pretty much the full vision of what they wanted for this movie and didn't have to like change much or at least didn't feel like they changed much. It still felt like one cohesive story that like they knew what they wanted to do and and it all came together, you know, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, I, I just wrote down a few bullet points here to sort of guide our conversation. One of them is just the words Bill Murray. Uh, I guess the the conversation around Bill Murray as a a person, as a human being, is a little bit fraught. But if we keep it just um, you know zeroed in on his performance in the movie, uh, what did you think about his his character and that sort of like I guess it's just a one scene appearance, really. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a perfect role for Bill Murray. You know, it's uh, it's basically like his take on Jeff Goldblum doing the Grandmaster mm-hmm. just in the quantum realm, and it's just tailored to Bill Murray's comedic sensibilities. Uh, and I really like the flirtatious nature of his relationship with with Janet and Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, I yeah, so I it was a quick part. I do wish there was maybe a little bit more of like a resolution with his character or like a hint whether he's still around or, or something going on with that. But but yeah, generally I, I was down with the character. Did, did it seem to you, and maybe I'd have to watch the movie again to really notice, but did, did it seem to you like that creature like grabbed him and actually ate him or did it just sort of grab him and like the camera cut away and we don't really know if he's alive or dead? I, I couldn't tell if they were trying to be you know, maybe not definitive as in like literally showing the the corpse laying on the ground, but like if they were trying to basically be like, okay, this was just a one, uh, one and done fun thing where Bill Murray is here, but don't expect him to pop up in, you know, future Marvel stuff. Yeah. It looked like that he was about to eat him and maybe we just didn't see it that way. Just in case if they want to bring him back, they were like, oh no, we never saw him die. Okay. All right, so let's talk about Jonathan Majors as Kang because this is the the, the big bad of the next phase of the MCU. Um, we've seen him play He Who Remains in the, the finale of Loki, which I, I love that episode. I don't remember if, if we talked about that, you and I, Brad, previously. Um, so I guess what did you think about that version of, of, uh, of Kang or of, of that character? And then what did you think about um, Jonathan Majors in this movie? I mean, Jonathan Majors has very quickly become one of my favorite actors working today. Uh, And this performance adds to the roster of things that I've seen him where I'm just so impressed and astounded by what he brings to to characters. Uh, The the just his delivery of lines alone, you know, I mean, the what he does with his voice, the way he says things, he he adds so much 
emotion to every single line he says, just just the way he does it, and not in a melodramatic fashion. Uh, in some ways, he kind of he kind of reminds me of Denzel Washington in that way. Just he just has a way of speaking that commands attention, no matter how quiet or loud he's he's saying something. You listen and you hang on every single word. Uh, and I love his portrayal of Kang here. You know, it, it's completely different from. Uh, for the most part, what we see from at the end of Loki, you know, there's a in Loki, he's got this like somewhat of a, a calm, playful Willy Wonka vibe to him here. He goes from having a calm, reserved, uh, all knowing attitude where he's just speaking in a way that's very matter of fact because he's seen everything essentially and then just blows into full rage because he can't con- contain it anymore. You know, he's been waiting so long for this and he wants it so badly. But there's also like what I love. Uh, in villainous performances that it's not just pure anger like there's there is a little bit of of sorrow to what he like feels like needs to be done in the same way there was with Thanos you know Thanos was a guy who believed what he was doing was the right thing for the universe and he uh, didn't like that he had to kill Gamora to get the get the soul stone and so uh, you you get that that vibe from this villain as well and then on top of that uh, he gives us wildly different performances for all the other versions of Kang in the, the post credit scene, which we'll talk about more later. But mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm thrilled that majors is playing this villain. And I, I can't wait to see like all the different things he does with the, the various variants that we'll encounter throughout phase five and say, phase six. I did think that the scenes with him and Michelle Pfeiffer were some of this movie's best where it sort of slows down a little bit. You, you, you put the brakes on all of the sort of chaotic nonsense, the CG nonsense that's happening in this world and just focus in on, Two characters who are essentially like um, like uh, abandoned at sea, kind of like isolated, and and these like yeah. people trying to solve problems and come up with stuff. I I wish that we got a little bit more of Majors in that mode before he sort of uh, I guess went full villain for lack of a better term. Um, but I I definitely appreciated like the gravitas that he brought to this. I, I wish he had. I wish the rules were a little bit more clear about Kang. Like, can you tell me what Kang's powers are based on what we've seen? Like, not not bringing in any comics uh, knowledge, but just like what we've seen so far. What does Kang do? What what can he do? I don't really know the answer to that. So, it's, I mean, from what I understand and can tell, because I'm also not super experienced with Kang and comic book stuff, but uh, he can he can travel the multiverse and cross into different timelines and. He is essentially has is, is powerful within himself. You know, he ha- he has superpowers, uh, not necessarily clearly defined, but super strength. You know, the his his suit gives him power as well. Um, you know, and he has these like I guess you could you know energy blasts out of yeah. his hands and, and whatnot. Uh, and he's just yeah has an intense strength and is able to you know he know, he knows so much about time in a cyclical fashion and things that have happened will happen, have happened Yeah, uh, that, that he knows what needs to be done to what he thinks is, you know, fix it basically. But like he, he can't travel through throughout the multiverse unless his, it, that's not something that's like inherent to him. Like he has to have technology Correct. to be able to do that. So, right. Um, and, and like, yeah, I don't know. I guess like I, I was kind of left wondering, um, especially by the end here, and we can jump around a little bit in the plot and everything, but like the the very end of this movie, right? The, the big battle happens and he is up in this tower and, you know, all this chaos is going on around them. And I'm, I just kind of like left my, I was left wondering like, is Kang ultra powerful or not? Because this movie kind of has it both ways where he can't, he, he seems to need Scott Lang to, use his uh his thief powers his thief abilities to go in and like put this core together um which i guess i get i, I wish that was something that was a little bit uh 
that that it relied more on Scott's abilities than just you know his his ability to to shrink down. Like I wish there was something a little bit more inherent to like who he was as a person that that made more sense for why he was like the one and only person who could achieve this thing for Kang. Uh, but I guess that's neither here or there. But like he he needs Scott for this. But then once the you know once the third act rolls around, basically Kang is just kind of like hanging out and not really doing much. And then he jumps down on the battlefield and starts blasting people with blue lasers out of his hands. And he gets real angry. And I just kind of was like, this guy is like the, the huge ultimate, you know, big bad of this thing. Like there, the acting, the performance was, was great, but like the, uh, the actions of the character, I guess, left me wondering what exactly I'm supposed to make of this guy, I guess. I don't know if that makes any sense to you or not, Brad. No, that's fair. And I, I think that, that, I think that's some, one of the things I've seen where the complaints of like not necessarily clearly defining like what how, what Kang is trying to do or how he's trying to do it, but I do think like it's you know they they created a MacGuffin in that that engine core, and I think one of the things it is is like that something unexpected was done with the core by having Janet use you know the the Pym particle weapons on it mm-hmm. and not allowing him to access it in a way that was was easy for him to do, and I think part like, I think honestly that is what makes Scott necessary is because. I don't think Kang is it would would have been able to is able to break through you know what uh, the the probability field that encompasses yeah. the, the the core because he's not I don't think he can wrap his head around the same way that someone like Scott can uh, because he's more uh, more simple essentially yeah uh, and I think that's where that comes into play yeah that makes sense to me and and he there there are moments where he's sort of like. Um, he he seems all seeing and all knowing, right? Like he he's he's experienced all the timelines and kind of has at least seen a lot. And then yet he's still surprised when certain things happen. So it's kind of like, can you see everything or not really? And like, so I, I was just a little, yeah, I guess a little confused I, on Kang. But I think that that's, that that has some, and they didn't explain this. This was my this is my assumption is it has something to do with the quantum realm and how time doesn't consistently work the same way it does everywhere else around there. In the same way that time in the TVA doesn't necessarily work in the same way it does everywhere else. So mm. like that to me, to me, that's the explanation that like I, I thought of when I was thinking about that. And uh, cause that's why he's banished there. Like he can't get out, you know? Yeah. So like he, he, he has no way of knowing what's going to happen. Like if that were the case, then he would have just, you know, patiently waited and known that like Scott and, you know, Hank and Jen and hope were going to end up there and that would be his opportunity, but that's, you know, not how it worked out. Yeah. Um, Evangeline Lily doesn't really have much to do in this movie. And I feel like that's, I guess she had a little bit more to do in Ant-Man and the Wasp, but, um, and she appeared very briefly in, in at least one of the Avengers movies. Uh, I was a little bummed to see that she didn't have, uh, you know, a ton to do here. Um, it seemed like the movie was more interested in the relationship between Ant-Man and his daughter, Cassie, than it was between Scott and, uh, and, um, Hope. Um, but I don't know. I guess I guess let's use this as an opportunity to talk about Evangeline Lilly and Paul Rudd. Like, what did you make of, of them in this movie? Did you think? Do you have any thoughts about them one way or the other? Uh, yeah, no, I I agree that I think Evangeline Lilly was kind of forgotten about. Uh, granted, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of Evangeline Lilly as a person, so I don't care about right. that personally. <laughs> right. I, I care more about the character being involved. It, it did seem weird for a movie called Ant Man the Wasp for her to be kind of like standing by its side and also being kind of partially responsible for the mistakes that are made in the movie. Um, like, you know, 
digging into the quantum realm, uh, knowing that there's something scary about it, ca- helping Cassie like send signals down to it. Like it doesn't seem like a smart idea. Hope, mm-hmm. uh, but aside from that, it feels like they really. And we did an article about this based on on my thoughts that I think uh, it was Jenna who wrote it. But like, it feels like they kind of forget that the wasp is there until uh, Scott can't do something by itself, and then mm-hmm. it's like, oh, oh, here comes here comes the wasp. Yep, that's it's it's a team movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's I, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, Okay, before we go any further, let's take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible T-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right. So one thing that I wanted to mention was this um, this revolution storyline. Uh so this whole thing felt a little undercooked to me. Um, Cassie was centered in that story in a way that I wish she wouldn't have been. Like I appreciated the way that the movie put some distance between Cassie and Scott at the beginning of the story where she's this activist and he wants to keep her safe as you know, he's in full dad mode there. But once they get to the quantum realm and meet this character named uh, Gentora, I think her name is played by Katie O'Brien, who is this sort of like quasi leader of this, um, displaced society who now lives in the quantum realm, Cassie ends up being pushed into this position of like solving the whole thing by being the person who makes the big speech at the end and calls everybody and rallies everybody to come to the tower and fight. And it reminded remind me of this, this line from uh, Bo Burnham has a song called uh, How the World Works, where there's a lyric that says, why do you rich fucking white people insist on seeing every sociopolitical conflict through the myopic lens of your own self-actualization? This isn't about (laughs) you. And I I just felt like that whole subplot would have landed much better for me if the roles were reversed at the end, where Cassie was the one like holding off the henchmen while Gentoro was actually the one who who made that rousing speech. Like all of those characters, Gentora and um, I forget what the other one's names are, but the, the ones played by uh, William Jackson Harper and uh, David Dasmalchian, who who played Kurt in the previous Ant-Man movies, plays that little like blob character with the, who's always talking about holes. Um, all of those guys kind of felt just like a, a little bit of an afterthought to me because they didn't have that much um, that much to them as characters. But I don't know, maybe maybe you felt differently because you, you like this movie more than I did. Yeah, I think for me, I I think I appreciate that criticism, and it, it does make sense to me. I don't think you're you're wrong for thinking that, but uh, for me, I feel like it kind of it ties together with the the opening of the movie in the way that Cassie is framed as being somebody who is is 
is actually fighting for the little guy while Scott is just kind of obsessed with his, you know, celebrity life and mm-hmm. approaching his book and stuff like that. And everyone's that, you know, is talking to him and like, well, at least we're doing something with, with our lives, you know? So for her, I think that closes the, her character loop of wanting to help people who need it and do something, you know, big and actually step into the role of being uh, a superhero, even though Scott doesn't necessarily think she's ready. I do think it might've worked a bit better if Scott was maybe the one to step up and give that speech and like realizes that, you know, he is a superhero and this is the kind of stuff he needs to do and, and worry about, you mm-hmm. know, uh, I th- I, but, but at the same time, that probably doesn't jive with everything else that happens uh, in the movie as far as just the where the characters need to be positioned and dealing with Kang and all that stuff. But for, for me, I think that uh, that mostly worked. Interestingly enough, I uh, if you look at this movie, it's uh, and this isn't necessarily going to help anybody like it more, but this movie is basically Tron Legacy with Ant-Man. Huh. I had not thought about that, but... That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. There are a ton of connections, man. Uh, hmm. There might be an article in that somewhere <laughs> if we haven't written it already. But yeah. Um, okay. Well, yeah. That, that gives me something to think about. Um, let's talk about Modok. What did you What did you think of the Modok of it all? Because this is a character that has appeared in Marvel Comics for a long, long time, and I guess has been uh, sort of like a you know, pe- fa- diehard fans have wondered if the MCU was ever going to actually be able to incorporate this character because it's just so bizarre. And they made some choices with MODOK that I think maybe like um, purists might not agree with. But uh, what did you think about the the MODOK situation here? This is something that also worked for me because MODOK is such a, a strange character in Marvel Comics that I don't know how you bring him into the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the way that we're used to seeing him in Marvel Comics. And I think it's a very clever uh, creative choice to take Darren Cross's uh, shrinking in the Yellow Jacket suit into the Quantum Realm and turn him into MODOK. I understand the criticism uh, surrounding visual effects and how his face looks as MODOK, but to me... I don't think it looks bad because they made it look photorealistic. They made it look like what, uh, um, uh, what's, what's the actor's name? Uh, Corey Stoll. Corey Stoll. They made, they made Corey Stoll's face look exactly like it would if it was a, a giant head with tiny arms and a body, uh, stretched a little bit and it looks unsettling. And Modoc is a character who looks grotesque and unsettling. So to me, it, it, it worked. And I liked how he was kind of, you know, driven a little bit mad by this situation. He's kind of off his hinges and doesn't really like take social cues and like, you know, <laughs> thinks he's an Avenger at the end. You know, like I, I laughed really hard at the line where he's like, I've always considered you a brother, Scott, you know, and like, yeah. and Paul Rudd's reaction to it is, is perfect. And so I, I dug the Modoc stuff. I, it worked for me. Yeah, I really appreciated the the creative use of what they did with that character. I just hated the way he looked. I just couldn't ever get over it. And I, I know what you're saying. And like, he's supposed to be unsettling, but he was like too unsettling to the point where it was like super distracting for me. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know anything about visual effects, but I, I wonder if there was like a different approach that they could have gone with there that would have been a little bit more... Um, not inviting because Modoc as a character is not an inviting person to look at, but um, I don't know something that that didn't quite uh, repel me as much as it did yeah. here. But to me, the more frustrating visual effect uh, was the blue visor that had to keep coming across Kang's face. I felt mm. like that always looked very strange and tacked on and like created a weird distortion of Jonathan Major's face. Like I feel yeah. like they tried to make it that it looked like a real visor that did create like photoreal distortion, but it just made it look more fake. Okay, so before I get into uh, another thing that I didn't like, I, I want to mention uh, one thing that I did love. My, my favorite part of the whole movie, um, 
And, and I feel like from our conversations offline, you may have really appreciated this aspect as well, Brad. It's the part where the, the offhanded way that Hank explains near the end of the movie how his aunts entered this time dilation situation and have lived thousands of years and invented their own technology and become like these super beings in the quantum realm. And nobody blinks an eye at this information as it's, as it's delivered. It's almost like, oh yeah, like this just happened. And here they come as an army to show up, you know, as part of the, the third act battle or whatever. Which like the the battle itself, I could take or leave. I don't really care. But the the uh, explanation for the ants' involvement and like really making this an Ant Man movie by like bringing all these ants in here and the explanation of what happened to them, I just thought was hilarious. I was the only person in my theater laughing out loud during that moment. Yeah, and I I, I love this moment because in my mind too, for most most of the movie, I guarantee you, a lot of people are thinking, where where's the the fucking ants? You know? Yeah. And they and they do. I I did think something was going to happen with them. I didn't know when necessarily. I thought they were going to show up earlier and help them get to where they needed to go. But they they specifically show all of the ants flying through the quantum realm with them, with all their technological gear on something like that. So I was like, okay, so they'll they'll come back at some point. I didn't expect it to be this big, and I certainly didn't expect them to turn into this, what Hank calls a, a class two civilization, which is, it's just, it's so, it's so weird and cool. And like, this is the, the, the cool sci-fi stuff that I really like this combined with like uh, the, the odd sci-fi characters who are part of the freedom fighters, you know, people like, uh, like Veb, the character voiced by David Malchian, you know, being this kind of like goo container and uh, just, just all those characters. Like this is, I liked the, the Rick and Morty vibe because Jeff Loveness, the writer of this movie was a Rick and Morty writer. And you really feel like he brought some of that, that Rick and Morty sci-fi flair uh, to, to Ant-Man under the, the, the Marvel lens. And, and mm-hmm. it, it really worked for me. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I loved that part. I thought it was just great. I, I wish there were more moments like that in this movie. I don't really know how they would have done that, but, um, I do think one thing that was missing and I, I don't know if they, if they cut it and they couldn't figure out anything to make work, but it, it felt like th- that Hank should have had some kind of cool line when he showed up with the ants, but he's just kind mm. of stand, standing there and letting the ants do the hefty, heavy lifting, which is fine. But I, there, there had to have been some kind of cool line you could have given him. Yeah, I guess Michael Douglas didn't really... This this movie is more of a showcase for Michelle Pfeiffer because she gets those scenes with Kang and Michael Douglas is just kind of, you know, happy to be there kind of thing. He's like, he spends most of the movie with his arms stuck in goo as he's piloting this weird, um, like, uh, whatever kind of ship. I don't even know what you would call that thing. It almost looks like a stingray. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess... I guess I did, I did love his delivery of when... Uh, when Michelle Pfeiffer asked about the affair that he had, he just said she wasn't you, baby. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so I guess talking about Michelle Pfeiffer, the the thing that I wanted to mention that I this movie does something that I I really don't care for in story storytelling, which is like it forces its characters to withhold critical information for nebulous reasons, even when they're asked to reveal that information by people yeah. who care about them. Like if Janet had just told everyone about Kang from the start, of course none of this would have happened. And I get that, like. There would be no movie if that happened. But it's the type of storytelling decision where, as a writer, you kind of have to justify why she didn't tell people. And I just personally was not fully buying into the movie's explanation for why she made that decision. And, like, I guess your mileage may vary on that. But, um, you know, the, the whole, I guess, the, the premise of the movie, right? Like, the the idea that Janet was gone for 30 years, didn't tell anybody about the the danger that operates there, and then getting mad at everybody and, like, you know, even even Cassie and and Hope and all these people like almost working behind her back, creating something that involves the quantum realm. Like, really, you wouldn't go to the woman who spent thirty years in the quantum realm to ask about this. Like, I don't know. There there were just some, I guess, some hurdles to get over to really like 
get the story going, but um, they were pretty significant hurdles in my view. I don't, I don't know if you bumped against those the same, the same way I did. Yeah, it, it did get a little bit frustrating where every time they asked a question, she was like, I can't tell you. Or it's like, you don't want to know. And it's like, yeah, no, they're we like, do well want to into, know. We need to know. Yeah, they're, they're well into the quantum realm when those conversations are happening. Like you would think that like, you know, uh, right when they first get sucked in and she, you know, uh, hides them away from like the, uh, the patrolling ship or something with the light, like, she keeps saying, like, we don't have time. You have to go, like, just just give them the 30-second version of what's going on and then catch them up along the way. Um, yeah. I don't know. And, yeah. I, and, I th- and, I, and I think that goes hand in hand, too, with the idea of, like, if Janet's being so secretive about, about this and she doesn't want to answer your questions about the quantum realm, you know, why does Hope think, oh, you know what, then it's probably something safe for us to play with with, with Scott's teenage daughter. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly right. Um, okay, so, so the ending of the movie, um, I, I don't really the ending was kind of a, a mess to me. Like uh, I, I couldn't really, I guess I could track it in real time, but I, I thinking about it now, it's what Tuesday. I saw the movie on Thursday. I couldn't tell you like beat by beat by beat exactly what happened, but I just remember this portal kind of showing up at the end and like hope comes through and, and saves Scott when he's, you know, getting in this punch battle with Kang basically. And it seems like they, they send him away into, you know, I don't know exactly what they, they, throw him into the core as it's exploding or something. I don't really know. Maybe you can tell me exactly what happens in the the end of this movie to the best of your memory, Brad. Yeah, that's basically what it is, you know, and like my, my initial question and it, uh, and I talked myself out of like the questioning of it by coming up with the explanation is that they realize that the only way that they can basically uh, ruin the core again is by uh, using multiple of the, of the, the pin particle weapons mm-hmm. again. Uh, against Kang and and the engine because that's exactly what they did uh, originally. You know, um, th- this is when they're in within the actual core itself, and so I think that it's just it's leaps in logic that are a little bit required to understand what's going on. But yeah, basically they they allow him to be like to to implode with the 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 core itself. Yeah, and and so there's a moment where like the um, I think it's Hank and Janet and Cassie and Hope all go through the portal on their way home, and then Scott hangs back and and is fighting with Kang. And I was like, oh wow, this movie's going to make a really interesting decision because Scott is going to stay behind instead of being whisked through this portal. He's going to actually like sacrifice, and he's going to you know, sort of complete that thematic arc from at the beginning of the movie, like you're talking about being obsessed with fame and celebrity in his book and all that. And then he's going to go to the end of this movie being, you know, a a person who understands what heroism really is and like sacrificing for his family and his loved ones and like making the decision to stay behind here. And then Hope just comes through a portal and sort of, you know, that's where you were mentioning the movie just like remembers that she is a character who exists and this movie has Ant-Man and the Wasp in the title and it feels like they need to do something together. Uh, and so they like have this little rousing moment and then um, they just kind of go through a portal at the end. And it seemed like, I don't know, it seemed like in the moment to me, like the portal opening and closing was a big deal. And then all of a sudden it wasn't and it was just easy for them to to go home all of a sudden. So well, I don't know, they, did you have they, any thoughts on that? They, they did have that scene where like it does show them back in the lab and like I guess I suppose it stands to reason that they have like multiple items of the thing that they they can use to like enter or like send a signal through the quantum realms because like, she did say that what they had figured out was a way to allow them to they she would have been able to find Scott in the quantum realm if they okay. had what they had you know before when he was lost okay so they they do talk about that but it um it, it did seem a little quick and convenient for them to be able to do that just so so quickly Mm -hmm. um 
But I, for me, I think the the problem I had with the, the quick exit with the portal was that I felt like there should have been a little bit more of a resolution, like a wrap up of like uh, Scott and and uh, Cassie and, and, and all of them talking to the other freedom fighters. Yes. as Like, uh, oh, what are you going to do next? You know, what's well, like what, what's going on here kind of thing, because it did feel like they kind of left that a little bit unresolved. Yeah, I think that's why I f- that's part of the reason why I felt that whole thing was a little undercooked. It's kind of like there, there's maybe one moment where Cassie looks at uh, Gentora and they kind of like nod and give each other a thumbs up or something. And yeah. like, that's it. Like that that's all the, you know, are we ever going to see these characters again? Does it matter? Do the, you know, what what is going to happen to them? Uh, all of this stuff. Like uh, these are, are questions the movie is not really interested in, in answering. And I just feel like with the amount of screen time that they gave those revolutionary characters, it, it just didn't feel like the movie treated them well enough by like giving us as much information as we wanted about yeah. them. So um, yeah, maybe that was the the result of cuts and whatever. And, and I was happy that this movie is not like, you know, two and a half hours or two hours and 40 minutes or whatever. So like, I guess I can't have my cake and eat it too, but, um, yeah. but you know, that was something that I, that I thought about. Uh, so let's talk about the, the post credit scenes. The, the first one is, what basically just like Kang Stadium, right? Of like you know thousands of of Kangs showing up, and like the um, the sort of like uh, I don't know what you would call them, like the the Council of Kangs, I think is what they're called in the comics, right? The the yeah. like is it three main uh, Kang variants who are just discussing about what the future is going to be, and it's it's basically the equivalent of Thanos, you know, looking over his shoulder at the end of the the Avengers, right? And yeah, and- exactly. It's the the, the main three are uh, Rama Tut, which is an Egyptian pharaoh version, uh, Immortus, uh, and then uh, the Scarlet Centurion is the one who's like the more uh, robotic one. I think it was okay. Um, but but yeah, so there's. Um, yeah, those, those three primary ones. And then there's the whole like stadium full of tons of different variants and, uh, seeing the distinct characters that Jonathan Majors gave each of these, like, it's going to be a lot of fun to see him bring, uh, a lot of different versions of this character to life over the, the next two phases of the MCU, I think. Yeah. I thought that there were, I'll have to watch this movie again, like when it hits Disney plus with subtitles on, because there were moments where I guess as the camera is panning across that stadium and you see all the different Kangs, I thought I heard barking in a human voice like as if he was uh one of the kangs was like um almost like hyping himself up or something by barking yeah. and i was like is there a kang dog that that um jonathan Probably. majors is doing Probably. the voice of like what is going on here so uh yeah I'm, I'm curious to see where that goes and then i guess the the final uh post credits scene is the uh basically like a tease for loki season two right like what, what do you know about this variant of kang that appears in that that uh post-credit sequence so victor timely is a variant of kang that does appear in marvel comics and it takes place in this the you know the past like it looks like uh the like early 1900s maybe even late late 1800s kind of thing mm-hmm. uh where he's kind of this you know showman and showing off technology and stuff like that before people even really understand it and so uh it seemed like this was a scene directly from loki season two like and an act like in the same way that they had that scene um with uh with captain america and falcon talking to bucky in that like abandoned warehouse mm-hmm. for when they, when they would tease uh captain america civil war and so i yeah I, I think that this will be a scene that we'll actually see on the show and just sets sets the, the the table for us to see that loki and uh mobius are going to be going around and tracking what kang is doing in other timelines yeah, that has me, has me excited about a Loki season two because I, I wasn't exactly sure where that show was going to go and whether or not Jonathan Majors was going to basically like 
use Loki as a launch pad into purely showing up in the movies, but it makes it seem pretty clear that he's going to be a major force in the second season of the show, which is exciting because I thought Loki was pretty good. Like one of the best MCU um, Disney plus shows, I think. Um, yeah. But that, that finale episode was phenomenal because he was so great in it. So I'm, I'm excited to, for what the future holds for the Loki uh, second season of that show, because more Kang uh, probably is going to, is going to make things a little bit more interesting on that front. So um any other like stray thoughts or, or topics that you wanted to bring up that we didn't cover yet, Brad? Uh, I don't think so. I think that's that pretty much covers covers everything that uh, I wanted to talk about. About oh, actually, you know, one thing I want to mention is uh, so the end for Scott Lang in this finds him, you know, back to his happy kind of life, uh, you know, doing normal things, hanging out. But I do like that they suddenly turn to this like grim inner monologue where he's like, "Wait a minute," he's like, "Did we really?" get rid of Kang. Like he said that there was more of them coming. If we got rid of him, he's like, did we just make this worse? And he has like, he basically has the, the Tony Stark existential crisis after uh, Avengers age of Ultron, where he's seen the future. He's seen Thanos and like uh, after going to space and stuff like that in, in Avengers as well, where he knows something is coming and it kind of just bugs him and drives him. But for someone like Scott Lang, he thinks about it for a second. He's like, oh, that's kind of worse. And he's like, eh, you know what? Just back to normal things. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, on one level, I appreciated that because it sort of subverts what you what we've already seen in the MCU. But on, on the other hand, it sort of contributed to my thing earlier that I was bumping up against, which is like, is Kang really, like, I know that, he's the ultimate bad guy, but that's just because that's what Kevin Feige has been telling me in the press, right? Like, I don't know if the movies have shown yet, or, or I guess his appearance on Loki has shown me yet exactly like why he should be this super feared character. And the idea of like Scott thinking about that and then just completely undercutting it with a joke makes sense for the Ant-Man movies, but it doesn't really do Jonathan Majors Kang any favors in the story. So uh, I don't know. I, I guess that's another instance of like them just, making a, a choice to um, to sort of stick with the the tonality that we're familiar with, with the, the Ant-Man movies. And one of the rare instances where they can actually give us like a, a pure joke in a movie that otherwise has a lot going on. Cause that's like back in San Francisco and yeah, for me, ice cream for me, cake and all that. <laughs> for me, it's less about, it, is, it doesn't, it didn't undercut Kang for me. For me, that's just a Scott Lang character trait, you know, where like he doesn't necessarily fully understand like the scope and he's not one to just like, get caught up in like the psychological worry that that, yeah. that brings to, for him because yeah because I, I do think majors himself does show that like kang will be a force to be reckoned with like if this is just one of the variants and sure they were able to dispatch with him but there are tons of kings out there you know and there these are probably more much more powerful than that one because they were able to banish him into the quantum realm so who knows how much more powerful you know there any of the rest of those kings are going to be yeah um, I, I'm sort of looking back over what we've said so far, and I feel like I've been a little bit more negative than I intended to on this episode because I, I did end up like enjoying the movie. Um, and I, f I feel like I've just like brought up all my issues with it, which are a lot and, and fairly significant, but I still had a good time watching it. So I don't know. Do we want to like end on a positive note? Was there any other like little moment that you liked or appreciated, Brad? Because um, I, I don't I don't want people to think that like I came away from this movie not liking it. I just I want our conversation to sort of represent both sides as best as it can. But No, um, I, th I think to me that kind of just shows that like that how enjoyable the movie is if you kind of let yourself get lost. And like, sure, it's fine if you are find yourself not able to get over these kinds of things. But in the grand scheme of things, I feel like the complaints, like the problems that you acknowledge in this movie 
don't outweigh like the the entertainment value that there is here and like the the things that do work do work really well i think it's just if, if some of those things don't work for you then like it just it ruins your overall taste of the movie um but for me you know i'm, I'm able to acknowledge some of the problems the movie has because it, it's not perfect and there, there's definitely issues as there are with every movie but for me just the the sci-fi scope the uh the performance from jonathan majors and just the, the mix of weird sci-fi with uh, the the Ant Man you know roster of characters and their their sense of humor and putting him on this this epic scale was really just a nice change of pace for this franchise for me and I liked seeing how it all came together and if anything you know I, I think part of it is too is that it, some, most of uh, Phase Four of the MCU was somewhat underwhelming and so seeing a movie like this that really f- uh, feels like it came together in a way that was cohesive and executed well without a lot of problems in post production or trying to to fix it you know with reshoots. For me, it, I think it just it finally felt like a Marvel movie that, you know, wasn't piecemeal together from several different scripts with, you know, a mix of reshoots and principal photography. It felt like yeah. they, knew what they knew what they wanted. And it, it, and if you don't like it, fine. But like to me, it, it works. And I, I wish more people liked it. Yeah. Fingers crossed that this is like the start of a, an upswing in the MCU because I, I feel like they, they certainly need it. And I, I definitely need it as somebody who, you know, used to love these movies and, and has sort of fallen out of love with them in, in recent years. And um, I, I want to love them again. So give me an excuse to do that. Um, oh, one, one other thing that I, I forgot to mention, the uh, the house that was alive that sort of like burst out of the, the ground and um, was like stomping people or like blasting yeah. people or sucking people up like a vacuum cleaner, whatever it was doing. Like that that's part of that weird sci-fi vibe that you mentioned yeah. that, um, that I really love. Like I haven't really seen a design like that before in any other movie. So I appreciated um, that sort of big swing aspect that Peyton Reed and his team uh, sort of incorporated into this. So. Um, okay. Yeah. I couldn't, couldn't end without talking about the, the, uh, <laughs> the house that was alive. So, um, all right. I think that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. You can find more about Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania at slashfilm.com. I will link to a few things in the show notes as well. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Don't forget to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now, but I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.